Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with scholars working in the field. With us today is Callie Jones. She's a professor at the University of Maryland and author of a new book, Bedouins into Bourgeois, Remaking Citizens for Globalization, which just came out with Cambridge University Press. Uh, Callie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. So tell us about this book. Uh, what were you trying to achieve and uh, what do you think the major uh, contributions of this book are? Right. So um, the book is about the making of citizens in the contemporary era, or what I call pro-globalization citizen building. And I was motivated to do to study this in part because I think so much of our theory about how states shape citizens is based on kind of an earlier era, where that was all about instilling national identities and particularly preparing citizens uh, to, to fight on the battlefield in war. And so nowadays we do see a lot of different priorities um, in citizen building, and that's what this book is about, the way UAE leaders um, are trying to create a new kind of citizen that is ready for globalization in their view, what outcomes they're achieving, and why we're seeing those outcomes. And so this notion of like a pro-globalization citizen, what does that mean exactly? Right. I mean, I think, so, you know, I mean, to me, on a very basic level, it means this the ways in which citizen building uh, as a challenge, as a classic state challenge, is changing. So, you know, nowadays... Citizens are, you know, being shaped in an era in which, you know, national identities are largely given, uh, and also uh, they are uh, having to build citizens um, in an era in which uh, uh, globalization is uh, proceeding and accelerating. And so, pro-globalization citizen building is about adapting to those new realities. So, building citizens who can fit within those new realities. And that said, though, I think that the challenge itself is being interpreted in these different ways. So, they need states. skills. They need to have these kinds of, uh, you know, competencies and uh, ability to navigate, you know, business and the internet and everything. Right. It's not enough just to, you know, pay taxes. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, thinking about the nature of citizen building, not just to about helping citizens to uh, fight on the battlefield, as has been traditionally understood, but also, I mean, as I say in the book, to kind of fight in market economies, so to be able to contribute to their nation's development. And yet at the same time, you're, you, you have a, you know, you frame this around this need to avoid the classic king's dilemma, you know, this idea that once you get people who are middle class and well-educated, they're going to want to have democracy. Mm. And so in a sense, you're trying to figure out a, a way of understanding education where you're creating competent citizens, but not the kind of middle class uh, citizens who would want democracy. Right. I mean, I, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I am trying to find out how to do that, but that well, is the process that I'm, right. that I'm looking at. So, you know, in the UAE, the, the leaders clearly don't want democratic citizens. They don't, and, and neither do leaders in Singapore or leaders in China or leaders in a lot of countries today. They don't want citizens making these democratic demands, but they do want citizens who are going to be contributing economically. And sometimes they want, you know, liberal citizens in a sense too, who are more open-minded, more tolerant, more socially or civic, uh, have a higher civic consciousness. Uh, but they just don't want those kinds of political demands. And so that is a tricky, tricky challenge that they're dealing with in the UAE. So how do they try and do it then? You spend all this time observing uh, the educational system and curricula. How does UAE try and do this? How do they thread that needle? Right. I mean, I think that they, um, you know, first of all, they, they're a lot more 
kind of aggressive about things like creativity and critical thinking than you might imagine. A lot of people might think, you know, what does creativity mean or critical thinking mean in an authoritarian context? Um, but, you know, surprisingly, they, they, they're, they're pretty open about this. Um, you know, they, as long as it's not critical thinking specifically about the way they're running, you know, mm -hmm. their regime. Um, so, you know, how do they try to kind of deal with that tension? You know, mostly I think that they just, you know, they, they'll point to disasters in other parts of the region, basically, and say, well, that's what happens when you, you know, start pushing for this sort of democracy. Um, we have a pretty kind of liberal, uh, open society here, which, uh, you know, has all sorts of opportunities for you to do what you want, you know, within certain bounds, um, to find economic mm -hmm. opportunities, uh, to, you know, meet your mate, to create art, uh, to do all sorts of things just short of calling for democracy. So how does this play out in education? Uh, kind of walk, walk us through, like, what, what do you observe in terms of this new approach to shaping citizens? Right. So um, in the education system, they have been being they've been very uh, hard on trying to shift from a kind of system of rote memorization, um, which is something we see in a lot of Arab education systems and is often tied with these kinds of authoritarian regimes. Um, and they have been pushing very hard against that to try to um, create standards-based curricula that are not about just where are you in the textbook, um, you know, teachers basically reading from the textbook uh, every day and just sort of sticking with it like that, to standards-based curricula where it's about acquiring skills and learning how to do things. Um, also, they have been pushing, you know, uh, the idea of thinking, you know, problem-solving um, in a less kind of structured way. Um, but they've also been pushing for things like tolerance and uh, civic consciousness in the school. So adding, for example, uh, community service requirements um, and also new civic new civic training that is in part about um, being responsible, as they say, and being tolerant um, and trying to kind of teach people from their view anyway what tolerance means. And so how much has this actually changed the practice of the educational system? So, you know, I think that it, it, it has changed, uh, especially, you know, Abu Dhabi and Dubai a lot. It's still, it's, it's you know, the changes have been, are picked up a little bit slower in the Northern Emirates because so much of this starts from the center and then goes outward. Um, but I think, you know, from what I've observed, I mean, it's changed, it's changed a lot. I mean, one of the most radical changes that I didn't mention is the switch to English as uh, the language uh, of instruction in most of the courses in uh, in K through 12. So with the exception of Arabic, Islamic studies, and some other humanities, uh, science, math, English being taught in English. And so that has been, I mean, a major, major change that is playing out as we speak. Now, how, is, how does this compare uh the best of your, you know, your research. How does this compare to uh, you know, elsewhere in the Gulf or elsewhere in the Middle East? Is this like something that's really unique, or is this something which is kind of a model which is, you know, being adopted or being adapted uh, to other contexts? You know, I think that it it's the UAE has been in many ways an early adopter of changes that a lot of people recognize are important. So a lot of people in many Middle Eastern countries see problems with their education systems. This rote memorization, the uh, mass cheating going on in Jordan, for example, surrounding the Tajihi. Um, you know, so they see these as problems. But the UAE, I think, has a particular combination of factors going on. It has the wealth uh, to be able to push this forward. It has some very enterprising rulers. 
that you know want to see these changes happen. It's not in the midst of conflict, um, and so I think at least locally. And so I think that it you know it's 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 been a kind of early adopter of these changes. We do see some of these changes going on in Jordan in particular. Um, and, you know, Saudi Arabia, increasingly, there's been talk of these kinds of changes, too. But I think UAE has been, been leading, leading the herd, in a sense. Now, one of the points that you make is uh, kind of it's very interesting about the role of expatriates and consultants and kind of the, the external role in, try, in, in, you know, in shaping and, and redoing these curriculum. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, how do these um, Western consultants or, for that matter, just like teachers, come into a system like the UAE and, and, and you know, work there? Right. So um, they, so the education reforms do involve these armies of foreign experts, a lot of whom are Western, um, from U.S., from Britain, from New Zealand, from Australia, but a lot of whom are also Levantine Arab, Palestinian, Jordanian, um, also sometimes Egyptian, you see. And, um, you know, they, I think they, uh, they play this key role um, on at least two levels. I mean, first, they, the consultant types are actually advising the rulers. I mean, they're part of these advisory teams that are telling them, here are ways in which you can get a world-class education system, and they're being paid very well for this. Um, and something I've seen is, you know, I mean, they're part of this larger market um, of expertise that we're seeing, uh, globally speaking, where, you know, universities, but also consulting firms are selling their research products mm -hmm. to, to regimes. And so something I've seen is that they, these experts will, um, you know, they'll provide a list of options to rulers, but then uh, rulers will just sort of select what they want to do. And the experts don't necessarily tell them, uh, you know, what they truly think, like, is this really going to work or not? Because they don't want to lose the contract. And so we sometimes see those perverse incentives at work. Um, so that's at the higher level. At the lower level, they're actually in the schools. And one of the issues there is that the foreign experts who are sometimes teaching, actually doing teaching, sometimes they're just foreign teachers, you know, who are there, actually have a hard time kind of implementing reforms because if they, you know, insult a citizen, a powerful citizen, a kid who has a powerful family, you know, they could easily get blacklisted and there's sort of a string of events that can happen very quickly and then they're, they're gone. So, the power relationship there is kind of weird. Yeah, exactly. So this is kind of a grand social experiment. Um, how has it worked out? Right. So, um, I mean, it's it's definitely still unfolding. Um, but in the book, I do talk about some sort of short-term outcomes. You know, what what is happening? What are they achieving? And so I look at um, some schools that are part of the old system, regular government schools, and then some schools that have uh, enacted some of these reforms toward creativity, problem-solving, science, math, vocational skills, English, also pushing mm -hmm. tolerance and the kind of social agenda. And what I found is that... Um, they are uh, having some success in some areas, it would appear, especially on that social front. So um, in uh, increasing the value that citizens place on things like tolerance and volunteering, a social uh, ethos of responsibility, um, and also nationalism. They are effectively increasing love of country, um, it seems. But perhaps more importantly, it looks like they're backfiring um, on the, these dynamics are backfiring on the economic front. So what I found is that they're not increasing entrepreneurialism, economic readiness, market friendliness. Um, they're actually uh, causing those to get worse in a sense. So they are- How's that? 
they're leading to, um, so I measured, for example, uh, citizens' expectations surrounding the right to a government job. And I found that those who have been subjected to this kind of social engineering actually believed in that right even more and were less entrepreneurial than those who had not been involved in this kind of pro-globalization social engineering. That's interesting. How would you compare the impact of this to, say, the Saudi model of exporting large numbers of students and supporting their study uh, abroad? Right. So that's that's a great question, and it's something that I want to think some more about. In fact, you know, one of my earlier projects was about study abroad and how mm -hmm. for, for American students and how study abroad can affect um, political attitudes. And so, I mean, I'd be very interested in actually testing that question or in exploring that. But I think that you know, I think that in, in in actually both cases, we see that education sometimes plays the signaling role, where it's more about status. So you know, you studied abroad in a top Western university, and you come back, and maybe you think that that should just get you this top level government post. It's sort mm -hmm. of like that's your reward. Um, so the education is less about a stepping stone toward contributions, maybe private sector contributions. And it's more about something you've been there, you know, you've done that. And it's something like you should be rewarded for this now with, with a government post. And so that's something that I think, you know, we're seeing with some of these reforms in the UAE where students in the schools doing the reforms feel very special about their, their status. Um, but also those who study abroad, I think, come back with that heightened status consciousness as well. So we've been speaking uh, about the educational system, and that's one of the major focus of the book. But but it's a, you actually the argument of the book is broader than that. It's about kind of nation building writ large. So let's talk about that bigger part of it. And you're looking at the uh, the Bedouins into bourgeois, right? It's a very uh, evocative uh, title, and you know about the making of this very specific kind of citizen. So tell us a little bit more about that. How does the educational reform fit into this broader project of creating this new Emirati man or new Emirati citizen? Right. Um, so I mean, the 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 title of the book is it, it's in part an homage to Peasants into Frenchmen, which is a book that inspired me and was about the 19th century efforts in France to create French citizens, uh, people who would identify with France um, out of you know populations who didn't necessarily see themselves as French. Mm -hmm. And so, similarly, you know, UAE rulers see themselves as uh, creating a new kind of citizen, um, a citizen who is not going to be kind of tied into old rentier uh, ways of thinking about citizenship. So, if we think about early efforts at citizen building in the UAE and some of the other Gulf states. It was very much about providing for citizens. So what does it mean to be a UAE citizen? It means to be well provided for by the state. Um, and rulers want to basically shift that um, legitimacy formula and that concept of citizenship away from I'm a citizen, so uh, I'm taken care of, to I'm a citizen, uh, I contribute. Um, and so I think that the education element of it is, is, is very important from the ruler's perspective, but they're also pushing the, this new citizenship ideal in different ways. Um, also through, in the book, I talk about state-sponsored spectacles, so uh, festivals, festival, there's a festival of thinking, a summer of semiconductors, all these kinds of events that are really 
well, that are often well attended um, and that kind of push this new narrative forward. So not just in education, but kind of social engineering more more broadly. And the other parts that went into the the classic Weber formulation, you know, the you know the notions of you know military service and standardization and shared media. Do you see that kind of full spectrum state led nation building going on? Um, so uh, I think. Um, I do in many respects. I mean, they are, you know, think of just to talk about standardization um, for a second or the way Jim Scott has talked about, you know, seeing like a state and rendering the state more or society more legible. I mean, one thing that they've done recently um, is uh, introduce the SEPA, which is a SAT-like test. Mm -hmm. And so that test, um, you know, it's very rationalizing. It's very institutionalizing. It's very standardizing. And it's about testing skills and ability as opposed to the traditional Ministry of Education exams, which have been basically about you know, memorizing a huge amount of material. So, I mean, I think that's a good example of mm -hmm. what they've done um, in that respect. Of course, there's a new national service law, too, uh, where they, you know, again, I think that can be seen as this larger effort to render society legible. Um, because they're kind of bringing in at least all you know men, women for women, it's a voluntary program, mm -hmm. um, and kind of subjecting them to this civic training plus this this mandatory military service. So there's this new fad in political science, for better or for worse, this pre-registration of your hypotheses. So I'm going to give you a chance to do that. So let's say that you're able to set your book aside for 20 years. And come back and come and look at the UAE uh, 20 years from now. Um, what, if your arguments are right, what do you think we should see in the UAE in terms of the kind of citizens that are being produced? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great question. Um, I think that, um, you know, in recent years, I think that they've really accelerated this social engineering campaign. So we don't part. have to wait 20 years? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. But I mean, I think that what I'm saying is that they're not stopping. So I think that we're going to see this continuing, especially uh, in contrast to what the rulers describe as the chaos in the mm -hmm. rest of the region. Um, and I think that, you know, 20 years time, I mean, I think that we will just see a much more... Um, politically conscious citizenry than we do now, um, in the sense both economically, uh, you know, being more kind of wising up almost to the rentier social contract. So this will become less implicit and more explicit, I think, where citizens will kind of be more aware of what's really going on. And so they will, uh, I think that, you know, they're not going to stop demanding government jobs if the strategy continues um, the way I've described in the book mm -hmm. with all of this nationalism surrounding it. So, you know, 20 years time, I mean, I think that the citizens will, you know, I don't see a lot of success in efforts to shift their mentality to private sector work, you know, as the, the mm -hmm. book has described. But I mean, I do think that we will see changes on the social and civic front, because that's where the social engineering campaign has been the most effective. So if, so if citizens end up becoming much more technically competent and well adapted to kind of globalization and, and the demands of the marketplace, but they also become more politically demanding. Mm -hmm. Is that a success or a failure? Well, I guess it depends on how you, you know, what perspective you take. Um, I think that, 
you know, there is a kind of Singapore alternative that the rulers are actively, you know, interested in. Um, and that, you know, that that is something that we could see. And, you know, from their perspective, I think that would be a success. I think that's what they, you know, would like to bring about. Um, you know, but from the perspective of kind of a normative perspective um, where, you know, you might think that regimes ought to have greater inclusiveness and they ought to have more democracy Then um, you know, that, and to the extent that democracy is associated with good governance, then um, I think that would be, a, that would be a failure. All right. We've been speaking with Callie Jones. She's the author of the new book, uh, Bedouins and de Bourgeois, just, just published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, Callie, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much.